Welcome to Lab the Podcast. We share time with people whose lives and work are helping re-enchant a world flattened by the fiction that we are alone and in the center. I'm grateful you're here for the conversation and invite you to join us in pursuit of more life and beauty. Lab the Podcast starts right now. Welcome to Lab the Podcast. Our guest tonight is going to help us go further up and further in in our pursuit to help people uncover enchanted reality. Dr. Jerry Root is a graduate of Whittier College and Talbot Graduate School of Theology at Biola University. He received his PhD from the Open University through Oxford Center for Mission Studies. He has written C.S. Lewis and A Problem of Evil, an investigation of a pervasive theme, and is the co-editor with Wayne Martindale of the best-selling and award-winning The Quotable C.S. Lewis. There's a list of other books and articles that Dr. Root has been a part of. Dr. Root has lectured on C.S. Lewis at 78 universities in 18 different countries. He's a popular speaker at C.S. Lewis conferences around the world. He's passionate about faith integrating with liberal arts and education. He and his wife, Claudia, have four grown children, all whom are married, and 15 grandchildren. As I said, I met Dr. Root last spring. Yeah, you can clap for that. Uh, And your kindness, your humility, and your wisdom struck me, but most of all, the way that you love people. So, Dr. Root, thank you for welcoming us and joining us down here. Thank you very much. Here's how I want to start, because this is what's curious about me. You have a peculiar way that you love people. I picked you up at the airport, and you embraced me with this gigantic bear hug. And our friend Roger Sandberg out in Oregon said, when you show up to meet Dr. Root, he's going to squeeze you with this gigantic bear hug. And that's what happened. Why do you love people so deeply? I'm fascinated by people. First off, God made everybody. That meant God took delight in each person he made. And I want to begin to see as best I can the delight he took in each person. And the next thing, too, I I love novels. I don't know about you guys, but I I love novels. But a novelist always has a, a narrative arc, a narrative thread they're tracing. And every feature in the story filters into that narrative thread. But people aren't narrative threads. They're fabrics. And as you meet a person, you can follow any one of the threads in their life, and you see all kinds of interesting things. And I, I believe, too, that everything leads to him, ultimately. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the poet, um, she once wrote, every bush is a burning bush, and the world is crowded with God. And what is it that God is saying to us through each individual you meet? Through their sorrows, through their joys, through their liabilities, and so on. We spend our life looking at other people and saying, how come I'm not like that person? Or, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that person. And we miss out on the delight that God took in making us the way he made us so that we could contribute to the benefits of others that we serve. And I'm just fascinated by it. Hmm. Well, you're fascinated and you embody it with bear hugs and long conversations and it's a joy c.s lewis said there are no mere mortals there are no mere mortals and you live that reality we're going to follow that thread of enchantment and the fact that there are no mere mortals but i want to start with your intersection with lewis and here's what i want to know how did a kid 
which may surprise you, growing up running around with a gun in South Central Los Angeles, ever meet C.S. Lewis in his fiction, in his, the beauty of his prose? How did you intersect with Lewis being a kid who was running around with a gun? Tell that story and that'll get us going. Well, I, I did grow up in South Central Los Angeles. If you know LA, there's a street that was the original street. It's called um, Olivera Street. It was the original Spanish street. And the street that runs right alongside of it is Alameda Street. And if you went straight south on Alameda, uh, three blocks off of Alameda between Florence and Firestones, where I grew up. I went to high school, guys who got free televisions during the Watts riots. Guy was shot in the leg right down the street from my house, that sort of thing. And, 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 and it wasn't, for me, I didn't consider it a rough area. If you've ever seen the, the documentary Bloods and Crips Made in America about how the gang started in L.A., first gang was called the Slauson Street Gang. My high school was on Slauson Street. That was all emerging, but it was home. And I don't think when you live in a place like that, you, you, you think differently of it. Um, we had water, water marks on our ceiling, and where they ended, that's where we had put the pails when it would rain. And somebody said to me, well, why, why didn't your family fix it? And I said, well, food's more important than you know, fixing the roof. And it didn't rain that often in Southern California. Plus, all my friends had those same water marks in their houses, too. So I, I grew up in a church. I never really heard the gospel there. I loved the people. They were good-hearted people. But they told me if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. And I wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog in the worst way, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see that movie. And the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down. I'm not embellishing. It happened just like this. She asked my mom if my brothers and I could go with her boys to see The Shaggy Dog. I'm looking at my mom with ambivalence, wanting to go on one hand and scared stiff on the other. And when my mom said we could go to the movie, I wondered if she really loved me, that she'd put my life in eternal peril. <laughs> But I was told, it, it, what I deduced as a boy is if I could lose any relationship with God based on what I did, I had to gain it based on what I did. And I was always in trouble. So consequently, I thought I was cooked. Once in a while, I did have a gun. I would take it to school. It was stupid. My frontal lobe wasn't fully developed. Nothing in my life was congruous. I was student body president at my high school, vice president of my youth group, going out getting in drunk, getting in fights, carrying a gun to school. How do you put those things together? None of it made sense. And life for me didn't make sense. My mom one day found the gun loaded between the mattresses. And she thought it was a starter pistol for track. So she's looking at this thing, you know, pulls the trigger, blows a hole through the mattress, a bullet lodges in the floor of the house. She calls me up at my friend's house and asks me to come home. She's just weeping. She thinks her son's going to go to prison. And then she gives me back the gun. Would you give the gun back to your 17-year-old son? She was just knocked off balance, I guess. But that moment shook me. I knew I wasn't going to heaven. I knew I was going to hell. I knew I was always in trouble. I knew that my life was a mess, but I realized I wasn't just hurting myself, I was hurting the people who cared for me as well. And I just slipped into total existential despair. And with that going on, I went to college to play sports. You have to take it by faith, but I was an athlete back then. And, and I went to college to play sports, and that first week, somebody took me to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting, and I heard that the God of the universe knew me and loved me. 
And I, I just was overwhelmed by that. I hadn't heard that message before. And about all my messed up stuff, he forgave me. And I have never ceased to be grateful for that. I am overwhelmed by it to this day. And I wanted every guy I played football with to know about it. So I would share Christ with every guy every year that I played. We saw about 15 guys a year come to Christ. About 60 guys came to faith over the time I was there. But they would ask questions, you know. I, I, I never once thought, before I became a Christian, never once thought about if God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? Never even crossed my mind. But my friends were asking that question. I thought, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. So I'd go dig for answers, and this name kept cropping up in the literature, C.S. Lewis. His quotes were really interesting. I didn't read any of his books. My sister told me the plot of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She was teaching uh, fifth grade in L.A., and I was at her house one night for dinner. Told me the plot of that book. I went out and read all the Narnia books. I was a junior in college. And I wanted to find out more about Lewis. I was intrigued by the book. So I read his story, Surprised by Joy, how he went from atheism to Christianity. And in this book, he talks about having been haunted by longings and the quest to find the object of his longings. I knew the longings. He gave me a vocabulary for my soul. And so I just started reading him voraciously. And, and Lewis opens more than wardrobe doors. You read him, you want to read the other authors that he was intrigued by, and they all talked about the longing too. And it just intrigued me. So I'm reading him voraciously. I get ready to graduate from college. And a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. All you do is lay a foundation for education. And we call our graduation exercises commencement. Now you will commence your education by building in that foundation. Pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. So I picked Lewis. I go to grad school. And they, the gra I didn't have grades really to get into grad school. I, st I kept my minimum uh, academic interest of staying eligible. That was my big high <laughs> ideal. <clears throat> but the grad school I went to, they would accept so many students on probation. Maybe God was doing something in their life. I think I took the whole quota the year I went there. But nevertheless, I had to write a thesis, and I was a PE major. You know, we were used to writing five-page papers in crayon, and now I have to write a thesis. <clears throat> and so I wasn't going to write it on the use of the optative mood in the Greek text of Philemon. It wasn't going to hold me. There actually is one optative in that book. Uh, but I asked if I could write on C.S. Lewis, and they said, yeah. So I wrote my thesis on Lewis, started putting pen to paper. The writing started following. I went on and did my uh, doctorate on Lewis as well and started lecturing on him and writing papers and reading papers and writing books. And I, I've been all over the world lecturing on Lewis. That's true. It surprises me, a South Central Los Angeles guy getting to see the world. But if nobody was interested in him whatsoever, guess what? I'd be all in. I'd be all in because this, this guy has opened up my world and helped me to see with wonder and awe the fascination, not only with each individual you meet, but every place you go. There's something of the, of, of the thumbprint of God there. C.S. Lewis said, God walks everywhere incognito. Our responsibility is to awaken to him and even more to remain awake. And, and there you go. 
This is, I love the, your story and the, the focus on longing. I think lots of us have had it and we haven't had language for it. This is what Lewis did for you. It's what Lewis did for me. It's what other great authors have done for us or friends or guides along the way is they give us language for something that we don't have words for. And he's provoking, he's touching this thing that there's a longing for another, for an, the other. And it, it touches something in us about a world that is, you know, this world, not the way that it's supposed to be. And intuitively we know it and we want this thing behind the thing. Lewis talks of it in, it talks about enchantment. And we talk about that in our work, uncovering enchanted reality. The real, the story that has been covered up. And if we tear down and we deconstruct all that that's been built up in opposition of what is true reality, we see it. Lewis helps us see enchantment. A little point on that, if I can, too, Zach. There, there's an author named Peter Berger, who's an eminent sociologist. And he wrote a book called The Rumor of Angels. And he says if God really made us, sort of like Augustine, our hearts are restless, O God, till they find their rest in thee. If God really made us, and there should be signals of transcendence, there should be stuff going on inside of us that would indicate this. And let me give you just how you could see it everywhere. Do you remember on 9-11, on the Flight 93 that went down in that field in Pennsylvania? And those guys wrestled it away from the terrorists, but the plane crashed. And the one guy that said, let's roll, his name was Todd Beamer. He used to be a kid in my college ministry, and he was a student of mine at Wheaton College, and he would come to my house for Bible study. I knew him. And, and the thing is, on that day, I caught myself saying, how do we make sense of this? The question, how do we make sense of this, is a God-indicating or transcendent-indicating question. If this is a material world and there's nothing beyond it, why are we even concerned about making sense of things? The quest to make sense seems to indicate there's something in us that believes there's some sense-making feature out there. We may not understand it, but, but these kinds of things constantly go on. Uh, even if you ask, how could I be safe in this world? 9-11, people were saying, man, if this could happen, how could I be safe? Why would we expect safety in a world where COVID uh, pandemics occur, tsunamis occur, earthquakes occur, you guys live where hurricanes occur, you know, <clears throat> people drop dead of heart attacks. Why do we ever think in this world we would be safe? And what is it about us that quests for the safe place? I think it's a heaven longing ultimately. And these are fascinating features. For me, beauty and joy were the things that were glimpses for me that, I, that, that there was another, there was an other. And I didn't have language for enchantment. Uh, Lewis helped with that, others have helped with that. Talk to us about, help us kind of zoom out and use, see enchantment through Lewis's frame. He had a way of thinking about enchantment and I think it's helpful for us as we kind of think about it through his lens. So help us understand Lewis's view on enchantment and what he saw uh, kind of in stages. Well, he writes about it everywhere, but one, one essay particularly that might help us, where it's very poignantly uh, developed, is an essay called uh, Talking About Bicycles. It's a funny name for an essay, isn't it? And it's in the, the book Present Concerns. And he said there's, there's four phases of enchantment. One is to be unenchanted. We, don't, we haven't had an awakening, an awakening moment yet. 
And these things are so unique and peculiar to an individual. Uh, for example, Lewis in his autobiography said, I never saw, absence of beauty characterized my childhood. I never saw a beautiful building, never believed a building could be beautiful. I went all through his boyhood home. Spent two and a half hours, the person who owned it, I was giving some lectures in Belfast, and the person who owned it opened up the door for me. And, and it's one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen in my life. What did he mean? I'm thinking about this passage in his book. And he said one day his brother, Warren, his older brother, brought a, a little toy garden he had made on the lid of a cookie tin. Put some moss on it, some little sprigs of whatnot. And he said, what all the real gardens failed to do to me, that garden did. And it awakened in me a sense of beauty. He was surrounded by beauty, but that moment it broke through to him. And each of us can be unenchanted, but something happens to us. I don't know if you've had this experience, walking down uh, a corridor in an art museum. Every one of those paintings attracted somebody somewhere. They didn't, wouldn't have gotten up there. But you're walking along, and all of a sudden you see, and one, one experience for me, Metropolitan Museum of Art, Cypresses in a Wheatfield by Van Gogh. And I go, oh my heavens, I don't know if you've seen it. It's got amber waves of grain. You look at the sky, the sky's turbulent. You can almost feel the wind blowing off of that canvas. And the brightness of the colors that you would expect from a Van Gogh painting and so on. And I'm standing there, I was with my wife and this other couple we know real well, and I'm standing there looking at this painting and after about 15, 20 minutes, I realize I'm hogging up the best place. I'm feeling bad, so I back up and I bump into a bench. I'm grateful for whoever put it there. I sit down and, and, and I look at the painting for another 10 or 15 minutes. I go, wait a minute, I'm with Claudia and these, these other friends. Where'd they go? And you know how art museums have those wide doors that go from room to room? I look down there, I don't see them. I look this way, I don't see them. You know what else I didn't see? A bench. Enough people must have had that experience with that painting that they put the bench there. Now, I've been back to it about seven or eight times, and there's benches all over the place now, so it's not quite like it used to be. But, 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 but the deal is, you have this enchanted moment. You see something. And I've had many, and I'm sure you have too. What's that about? So there's unenchanted, enchanted. But now if I think it's the painting that really does it, I'm gonna eventually be disappointed. There's a whole body of literature on first love. And a lot of people think, wow, this person, they do it for me, you know. But human love is great as far as it goes, but human love can never replace first love, ultimate first love, which is God love. And, and if you read literature, you've, you've encountered this. If you read Dante, long before he wrote the Divine Comedy, he wrote the Vita Nuova, about when he first met Beatrice Portinari on the streets of Florence. And something was triggered in him, but what was it about? 25 years after he writes the Vita Nuova, he writes a divine comedy. And Virgil, who for him, the author of the Aeneid, represented the highest of literary beauty, Virgil leads him through the, uh, 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 the uh, Inferno, leads him halfway through the Purgatorio, and Beatrice, who's died, comes out of heaven and collects him and leads him to the very threshold of the vision of God. And Dante says, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. When C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. The last lines of that book are in Italian. It's Dante. 
She turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. If I expect my wife to do for me what only God can do for me, I'll begin to project my disappointment on her. But if I receive from God what he wants to give me, I can love my wife the way she needs to be loved. So you have unenchanted, enchanted. If you think the enchanted is the thing you want, you'll be disenchanted. And what will reawaken you? When you come to the moment, Lewis says, of re-enchantment, and that's when we realize it is God who helps us to make sense of all of this stuff. You, you've got passages of Scripture like this too. Uh, Psalm 16, 11, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Or James 1, 17, Every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God gives us gifts to woo us, but never as replacements for him. The gifts that he gives are the things that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And if we make those gifts more important, we lose out on both first and second things. Lewis actually wrote an essay called First and Second Things. It's in the book God and the Dock. <clears throat> and so I want, I want to discover ultimately, ultimate re-enchantment, which is to find that God is a source of all of this joy that God is behind all beauty. And the beauty that awakens my interest is glorious, I'm grateful, but it's not that that's going to satisfy what's been awakened. I had a season of the haunting and the longing, and we were talking at lunch about in that season when you don't know what you're longing for, you're in that maybe unenchanted space, you haven't had that moment that breaks through, uh, you're running and trying to satisfy with all different manner of things and part of that is the hunger and thirst for that thing that you long for but sometimes it's because we are hurt and there is something else going on in our story that has happened and I grew up listening to my dad's records he had a record collection with all sorts of things mom did not like it when we listened to Steppenwolf or Three Dog Night or th those were like the band records but I would get those records and you were talking at lunch the other day about an experience that is that can be common to us that leads us to run, leads us to pursue other things, to try to mask or heal or mitigate that pain. And you yeah. described a record, uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where it sticks and it goes thump, 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 thump. Some of you are looking at me like I've never listened to a record before. You should try it. They're beautiful. They're enchanting. Talk about what you saw in the stuck record, in the scratch of a record. And I want you to listen. Everybody who's listening, uh, if you're on a run, just kind of focus back and listen to this because there was something in this for me that was important. And talk about scratches in our record. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was a poet, uh, Wordsworth, who in one of his poems said, the child is the father of the man. He could have said the child is the mother of the woman. And in this broken, fallen world, we pick up messages that are false. Somebody says something horrible to you in a junior high lunch line or something, or you, you were hurt or something happened at home. A lot of it's related to where relationships are most important. So a lot of it we pick up at home, sins of the parents or visit on the children, third, fourth generation, stuff like that. And so consequently, I, an analogy I like to use is that our lives are like an old phonograph record that's gotten scratched and they go round, go round, go round. We could be doing well developmentally in a thousand areas, but there may be two, three, four, five places where we're just stuck developmentally. 
something happened. You'll see it sometimes if you meet a person who's really bitter in life and something hurt them and they have so focused on what hurt them. The person who hurt them could be dead and buried 20 years ago it happened, but they gave that person too much control in their life. They didn't learn to grieve and forgive and get past that thing. So these, these scratches, I think all of us have them. And, and we're, they happen usually when we're young, we pick them up and we try to, to deaden the pain. And so we gravitate towards what I call anesthetizing behaviors. These are not behaviors that get us better, they're behaviors that get us by. And you have the obvious anesthetizing behaviors, alcohol addiction, a drug addiction, sexual addiction, eating disorders, workaholism, and so on. Um, I, I, I've worked with Hell's Angel type people before. Not that many, but enough to have seen a pattern and seen an abstraction. Everyone I got close to had a marshmallow heart. And so the hard veneer was to protect what got to that heart. That was a pattern they did. And I, I, I know a guy who creates chaos in his world, and he does it to deflect anybody seeing the chaos that's going on in his soul. We, we have these things. But as we grow, we pick up convictions. And the convictions are often contrary to our anesthetizing behaviors. So consequently, why do we keep on with the anesthetizing behaviors? And I like to think it's because our wounds are deeper than our convictions. And we haven't yet learned to trust that God can heal us at the place of our brokenness. We want to stay in control of what's gotten us by rather than yield what's gotten us by to get what's, what will get us better. And it seems to me, did you want me to tell the story of the, the kid? Or? Well, what, I'm, what I hope we have time for is, you know, when you think about how do you recover, how do you heal, how do you get past those scratches and to the point where we can break from that looping track. And you talked about Ephraim and Manasseh and forgetting, forgive and forget to the point of fruitfulness. And if we don't have time for anything else tonight, this is, this is us, right? This is, this is the story. Childhood, young adulthood, we have these deep scratches. And these deep scratches penetrate deeper than our convictions and we're stuck. And there's something that keeps us in that place. T tell us the story of moving from forgetting and forgiving into this place of fruitfulness and how yeah. these two... Brothers. All, all, all of this stuff's in the Bible that I'm sharing with you. Lewis got it from someplace, right? But you can read in life all these things, but nevertheless, you look at Joseph. Um, <clears throat> Joseph is a kid whose mother dies when he's probably about six, giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin. Um, his brothers treat him horribly. Why do they treat him horribly? Because they thought their dad loved him more. That means Simeon and Naphtali and Reuben, their stories are sad, too, because if you, if you thought your dad loved your sibling more than you, your story's sad then, too. But Joseph, Joseph wasn't responsible for what was going on with his father, Jacob. And if anybody should have not loved one child more than the other, it should have been Jacob, who was the unloved son of his father, Isaac, who preferred Esau over him. But again, these things come down. So the brothers... They basically capture him, sell him into slavery. He's 17 years old, he's on his own. Ends up in Potiphar's house, horribly treated. And then, and then he ends up 
uh, Potiphar's wife comes on to him. He's circumspect. He does the right thing. She accuses him. He ends up going to prison for seven years. And you think to yourself, this guy's got gazillion scratches on his record. Can he ever get better? And he does. And God works in him. He's even able to say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What is going on with this guy? How did he get better? How did he get over all that stuff? And when you read about when he was finally married to the uh, uh, high priest's daughter, by his daughter he has two children. He names the first one Manasseh. He names the second one Ephraim. Do you, do you remember what Manasseh meant? It meant, uh, sometimes I'll have students and I'll talk about this and I'll say, did any of you know what Manasseh meant? And there'll be some say, yeah, I used to know, I used to know. I go, well, what happened? They go, I forgot. I go, that's what it means. Exactly, you're right. I knew we could draw it out of you. I forget. And Joseph says, for the Lord made it possible for me to forget what happened in my father's house. Now, he didn't forget as far as having the mental capacity to remember because when the brothers come to get food, he feeds them in chronological order of their birth. When they first come, they don't come with his younger brother, Benjamin. And he says, do you have any other brothers? They got 10 brothers. Why, why would he be asking that? Isn't that enough? But I think he sees Benjamin's not there. And he probably is thinking, did you sell him off someplace too? Do I need to go try and find him? You know? But he remembers details. What did he mean, I forget? And I think that it meant that he processed forgiveness to the healing place. He grieved. Forgiveness is like grief. You're grieving a life without scratches in your record. If, 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 you, if you have a long drive ahead of you someday, you're gonna drive a couple hours, my guess is your mind will start to gravitate towards unresolved pain. You'll wanna turn on the radio or something, plug in a CD. Don't sit with it. Get to the place where you remember. Let your heart break, let the tears flow. And maybe in two hours, you'll finally get it to the forgiveness place. A couple weeks later, two hours. A couple weeks later, two hours. A couple weeks later, an hour and 45 minutes. Next time, an hour and 15 minutes. Next time, 45 minutes. Next time, three hours, you just had a relapse. But one day, the memory and the forgiveness become a single act. You've grieved and you've forgiven. And Manasseh's been born. Doesn't hold you anymore. He has a second son whose name is Ephraim. Ephraim means be fruitful. Get on with the fruitful purposes that God has for you. And interestingly enough, he's in the recycle business. God is in the recycle business. He takes all of that brokenness, that human brokenness, and he allows you to use that in your life to become more empathetic towards others, maybe to gain some wisdom in the process of life, to become kinder in your treatment of other people, to recognize that every person you meet is also carrying around some degree of sadness. And you have an opportunity to be kind to that person. Maybe be a source of a wounded healer to that person and so on. So I, th I think it's real significant. And you look at it, I say it's all in the Bible. Have any of you ever read the life of David and you say, man, this guy was a great leader. He had his lapses to be sure, but he's a great leader. How come he was such a horrible father? And I'm asking that question one time. I said, I got to study this guy's life and see if I can find clues. So Samuel's told to go anoint a king from the household of Jesse. And he gets to Jesse's house and he says to Jesse, I want to meet your sons. And Jesse brings out Eliab, this big strapping guy. And, and, and Samuel says, he must be the guy. 
And God says, no, 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 no. I know he looks presidential. You know how we always say, does a person look presidential? I could care less if a person looks presidential. I want to know, are they presidential? So anyway, he, he looks kingly, and God says, no, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. He's not the guy. He brings Shimei by. He's not the guy. He brings six sons by. And Samuel's not getting the confirmation from God. Why is that detail in there? Why didn't God give him, just go anoint David? Because he's giving us clues in Scripture so we could see our own story somehow masked or mirrored in that story. And finally, Samuel has to ask specifically, do you have another son? Well, I do. He's out there taking care of sheep. He doesn't really matter much. Bingo. He didn't have a relationship with his own father. He didn't know how to do it. And if you don't have a good relationship someplace, what do you do? Use that as an excuse or say, well, I'm going to have to work a little harder. I'm going to have to learn from others, read some books, grieve, forgive, and consequently because of that maybe be more prepared for the opportunity that you might have to minister to somebody else when Ephraim is born in you and you could be fruitful. It's all in the Bible. It's cool, isn't it? It's, it's beautiful. It's enchanted reality. And this is what I hope this conversation is stirring up and provoking is I hope that there's a resonance with the longing in you that glimmer of transcendence, those, those, those are there intentionally. It's who you were made to be. You were made for another. And so I hope that you sense that longing and hear us talking about it. I love that Lewis's work kind of blows across the dust of a book and, and illuminates, uncovers some things that we say. I never knew that about Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's so much that we don't know. And this is what I love about this conversation, the, the exploration. We don't know what we don't know. And there's so much to discover. Well, look at, look at Lewis himself. He's very aware of these sorts of things. If you read the Narnian books, Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe feels marginalized by his siblings. And he does some bad things. He betrays them for Turkish delight to the white witch. I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy had low standards. I'd hold out for chocolate at least if I was going to betray my siblings. But he betrays them, and he's, he's, he does terrible things. There's only one way that he can be set free. Aslan has to give up his life. Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure of the Narnian books, gives up his life and sacrifices to set Edmund free. You fast forward to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it begins, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's written by Clive Staples Lewis, who knew nobody deserved to be named Clive Staples Lewis. But Eustace is a brat, the archetypal brat. He's got the heart of a dragon under the skin of a little boy. And he gets sucked into Narnia with his cousins, Edmund and Lucy. And in Narnia, the magic of that land, he's turned externally into the thing he's always been internally. He's turned into a dragon. And all of a sudden, he sees himself reflected in a pond, and he discovers how messed up he's been all along. That moment of truth, that moment of reality. In his dragon state, he's able to help the Dawn Treader because they've had a terrible storm. They've had damage to their ship and all that stuff. And he's able to help them in his great strength now. But the day's going to come when they have to sail away, and what are you going to do with the dragon? There's no place for him on the boat. And in the gray dawn moments of the next day when they're going to sail away, Eustace comes walking back, boy again, to the camp. And there's one person 
in the camp of the Dawn Treader, who's there to receive him up and awake to be his father confessor. And here's his story, how Aslan undragoned him. It's a wonderful story in its own right. But who was it that greeted Eustace when he comes back? Edmund, the one who himself had to have been undragoned. And now he can be empathetically an Ephraim to Eustace. And then the next book is The Silver Chair. King Caspian's son, Relian, has been captured and kidnapped. And he's under a spell. And Eustace is sent back to Narnia to be the one to become the father confessor and rescuer and exhibit an Ephraim-like characteristic towards Rillian. It's just amazing. Lewis gets it. And, and I like reading him because you read him and all of a sudden you start to see things and when you realize there's application to your own life, you can start to see some healing prospects for yourself and you can also see when you meet somebody and they're struggling, maybe you can say, did you consider this? Have you thought about that? you see some lights go on in their eyes. It's kind of fun. How, after all this time with Lewis's work, traveling, you've been 18 countries, lectured all over the world, how do you, it's, wonder is kind of, I trip over wonder because there's so much I don't know and it's in front of me all the time. At this point in your story, how do you keep that sense of wonder? Well, first off, I've lectured on Lewis actually in 19 countries, but I've been to about 70 countries. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm fascinated by everything. My dad was in the Marines during World War II. I wanted to go see all the places where he fought. Uh, my wife's father was the last surviving pilot to have flown on the two atomic bomb drops. We wanted to see where they took off. My dad was horribly wounded taking that island as a Marine. And we went and saw it. My grandfather was born in Australia. I saved my money. I wanted to see it. I've been to all the places where Lewis fought in World War I. I wanted to see him. I'm curious. And curiosity is a wonderful thing, I think. Do whatever you can to, to stir it up if you can. But, but you ask, how, do, how have I kept a sense of wonder? When, when, years ago, I used to meet with a plumber for breakfast. And one morning, it, he was an interesting guy. He had been an English major in college and he went into a family plumbing business. He, it was commencement for him. He continued reading even after he graduated. He had calluses on his brain from his reading, and he had calluses on his hands from the family plumbing business. Fascinating guy. From all I could see with him, he was, he was a good man, a good husband, a good father, interesting guy. And one day over breakfast, he drew three concentric circles on a napkin, paper napkin. And he said, I think our acquisition of knowledge is like these three concentric circles. If you look in at what you're acquiring, you're always at risk of becoming proud the more you know. But the way to keep growing is to look out from the developing perimeter of what you know, to see that the amount of stuff out there that you have no clue about is massive. And you keep getting, the more you know, a bigger, bigger perspective of how much there is out there we know nothing about. Well, people, we're just pea brains. I, I love to see snooty academics in my world, you know, I hang around with academics. I love to see snooty academics and they start strutting their stuff. And I don't condemn them, I don't try to put them down or shame them, but I say, isn't it interesting what pea brains we are? You know, I've read probably 600 books on the problem of evil. Don't be impressed. There's millions of books on this thing. And all of us are scratching at the surface of anything we know. You can have a sure word about something. 
You'll never get a last word about anything. So you can have a sure word, you can have confidence about what you know, but there's still depths to explore. There's still breadths as far as application. There's, there's applications you can make to the things you know, to questions you haven't even begun to ask yet. And so consequently, it seems to me, with this growing perspective of how little there is we know, given how much we know, it makes no difference. Um, I think that the only proper stance in life is to be full of curiosity, wonder, awe, and God is really big. Remember Lucy? She goes back to Narnia for her first time, for her second time, but the first time she sees Aslan and the second time she goes back and Prince Caspian, she says to Aslan, the Christ figure, Aslan, you're bigger. He says, oh no, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. How could you not be in a sense of wonder and awe given those realities? Is that fair? It's fair. I love it. That's a, a sure word, not a last word. We'll have to put a comma on it and continue it down the road. We're, we're immersed in it, right? It's Advent season. And so if you're listening, if you're in the room live, the grand miracle, the incarnation, Lewis was enchanted by this idea. There's so much there. And I just want to encourage you, there's no better time to open yourself up to what we don't know in the sense of wonder and just let your imagination widen slow down from now until Christmas, pick up a book, ask a new question, open your Bible, follow the thread of Ephraim. This is a good exercise. And Dr. Root, thank you so much for sharing the time with us. Thank you for making the trip from the frigid uh, (laughs) north-ish down to our way. We're just so deeply grateful for you. We have to stop now. I feel like we're just getting started. (laughs) We're going to turn the recording off, and then we get to do back and forth question and answer. So Dr. Root, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. We're so grateful to share this time with you. And even more than that, we're grateful you're a part of this growing movement of life and beauty. Until our next conversation, make sure you like, subscribe, follow the podcast, follow us on Instagram, check out VUVIVO.com to learn more about our work. And we'll see you back here for Lab the Podcast next time.